We want to welcome you to the Reformed Informants. This is a podcast devoted to biblical exposition, systematic theology, and practical application for the good of the church. I'm Lance Burroughs. And I'm TJ Darty. And we are the Reformed Informants. Wow, that was so pure. Did, uh, did your heart rate bounce yeah, up, I, you think? I'm or no? looking at my notes as if I'm not going to remember my name as you were reading that. So <laughs> just want to make sure I got it right. Oh, man. Hey, I don't think I've asked you yet on the podcast. So I want to go ahead and ask you, mainly because this will help intro uh, me into a, a story. Okay. Uh, you know, a little event episode that happened uh, this week. But how is being a homeowner in Paris, Kentucky? Oh, dude, it is, uh, you know, now that I say, now that you asked me this, being a homeowner, this is this first time Chloe and I have owned a home. We've, we've bounced around several different places, wasn't sure where we're going to end up. And so we finally got roots, but, uh, there are about 2000 projects that I need to do, you know, just things that when you're invested in a home. Uh, so yeah, that's probably the, the gist of it right there is I've, I've got so much ambition and so little time to get things done. Yeah, the the number one project would be the CrossFit box. Yes, um, yeah, absolutely. What what'd you call that thing we built in your backyard at, at the house that you were? Oh renting yeah, here? I don't know some kind of some kind of uh, muscle up rig. Yeah, that yeah. was man, that was that was a, a treasure. And yeah, for the you, two muscle ups that I could do. <laughs> <laughs> you're a saint for helping me put that together. By the way, I miss I miss that thing. Yeah, the, well, the reason I ask about owning a home. Um, during the elders meeting last week uh, at Countryside, we we zoomed in. Everybody zoomed in. You know, with COVID nineteen still going on. Mm-hmm. Just wanted to take some precautions. So halfway through that elders meeting, I'm sitting in my office slash uh, studio for yeah. uh, RI season one, and, and I'm looking out. There's like a little porch area that I've got next to the office over here, and, and there's a puddle of water on on the concrete. Okay. On the other side of the brick wall is where my refrigerator goes and where my sink is in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. So mid-meeting, in my head, I'm thinking, you have got to be kidding me. Like something has busted and it's now gone through the brick and it's out on the porch, right? <sighs> so I'm yeah. zoom out of the elders meeting. I'm pulling out the refrigerator down underneath the sink. I can't find a drop of water. Drop good news, of water. bad news. Right? Yeah, good news, bad news situation, yeah. right? So I think Lindsay was doing some laundry or get coming out of the shower or whatnot. She comes in and, you know, the kitchen's basically torn apart because I've got, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to find it. By the way, let me, let me give a little advice to all of our listeners. You, you might want to pull your refrigerator out and clean behind that thing. <laughs> <laughs> this is so good. I had to, this is gold. Keep, keep yeah. going. I want to know what happened. Yeah. So the refrigerator was disgusting. That, that was the first thing. So I walk outside onto the porch area and I hear dripping. I look straight up. The condensation line from my air conditioner in the attic is dripping out water. I never knew that's where my condensation line was. So I went up in the attic and the condensation pan, uh, you know, has some water in it because the humidity has just been outrageous here. Yeah. And it was dripping like a waterfall mid elders meeting. And I, I had no idea. No oh. idea that even existed in that location. How long have you lived in that house? Dude, I can't believe you just asked me that because now I'm going to be really embarrassed. But I've lived <laughs> here for... <laughs> <laughs> just edit it out. I've lived here for 10 years. Gosh, 10, 10 years. years. 
So you need to go find your condensation line from the AC and figure out where that's emptying out. And clean behind my refrigerator, apparently. (laughs) Yeah, all of our listeners, all a couple dozen of you guys, you got some work to do this weekend. Yeah, we got got a lot. Listen to the next episode while cleaning out behind your fridge. That's what we've learned today. That's perfect. That's perfect. That's that's great. Uh, Well, hey, speaking of, we, we... Last week's episode, I haven't gotten to listen to it yet, but we had uh, my longtime friend, uh, Abby Todd on, Dr. Abby Todd now. Awesome conversation. Really enjoyed being able to do that. But we're back into the grind this week. We're getting back into the Christology deal. So what what are we doing today? What have we done? How's this whole thing? You recap us instead of me doing it. You recap us and fill us in on where we're at. Yeah, well... uh we're recording right now. This is uh, part five of our Christology series. Um, as we build a Reformed informant systematic, this is the category that we're on now. So we're focusing in on Christ, not in terms of uh, how to define Christ um, from a worldly perspective or from philosophy or anything outside of Scripture, but solely based on what the Bible says. So uh, we kicked off this series looking at the grand distinction of Christianity um, which would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we've done in the episodes that were to follow that one is we have uh, defined uh, Jesus in terms of his divinity and in terms of his humanity. So I think we've spent um, the, the past three episodes doing that. We looked at his preexistence. We looked at his uh, distinction. Uh, we looked at his divinity and humanity. Um, all, all in hopes of ultimately getting to this episode that we're about to record today. So yep. if this is your first time listening to the podcast, maybe you know you saw Abby retweet or post that he was here, and so you're new to the podcast, we want you to go back, of course, listen to the previous 47 episodes. <laughs> but if you don't have time to do that, you want to go back and listen to um, part three and part four of Christology, because that's ultimately building to where we're going uh, with uh, today's episode. TJ, what do you want to add to that? No, I mean that was that was really good. Um, I I think that it's important. I'm I'm actually uh, actually just preached a sermon on this from Philippians chapter two, so this is very fresh for me. Um, but getting to this episode, in order to talk about what we're going to talk about for this, you have to have the other two episodes in play. In other words, when we think about the person of Christ and who Jesus is, and not only who he has been eternally and who he will be in eternity future, but especially and particularly in the incarnation, in his time on the earth. So that's specifically where this kind of mini series is narrowed in on. So we right, we looked at this grand distinction of who he is overall and we looked at his eternal preexistence. But now we're looking at while he resided on the earth, while when he took on flesh. So we've talked about his deity on the earth. Uh, and then we talked about his humanity on the earth. And then today we're going to look at how these two things coexist, uh, his deity and his humanity. And um, and, and I'm going to read this quote again. You pulled this for us uh, the first time. I, b- I believe it was the first episode of this series, uh, if, I, if I remember correctly. We were kind of talking about the different uh, heresies and misunderstandings. Is that right? Right. Uh, th- yeah, thinking about that. But this quote from Paul Washer, I actually stole this from you, Lance, and used it in my sermon yesterday as well. Uh, but I-, I love what Paul Washer says here. He says, throughout the history of the church, there have been many heresies regarding the exact relationship between the divine and the human natures in the person of Christ. In other words, a lot of people through the last 2,000 years have gotten this wrong. 
Some of these false teachings have come from heretics who sought to deny either his deity or his humanity. So some people, they completely misconstrued the text uh, seemingly on purpose or with some kind of uh, ill intent to deny his deity or to deny his humanity. But we would affirm both of those things. But Washer's quote continues. She says, however, other erroneous teachings have also come from sincere Christians who simply took it upon themselves to explain the matter and leave no room for mystery. Therefore, we must endeavor to speak and write with caution. And, and I mentioned that, Lance, for, for our listeners, but also for me and for you to just remember that this we are treading on holy ground here, thinking about this significant an incomprehensible doctrine. Uh, we're trying to have a conversation about something that's beyond comprehension to a degree uh, and just kind of holding that mystery uh, in its place so that we recognize this is, this is beyond us, but we still want to have a conversation about it. How would, how would you add to that? No, I, I can't, I can't even add to that. Um, and that kind of trickles into uh, my initiative uh, for, for the end of this episode. So I'm going to save those comments. Okay. Uh, until we get there. But I appreciate you pulling that quote again, uh, because it is a wonderful reminder that even though there is mystery within this discussion that we're about to have, it's okay that that mystery is there. But what we don't want to do is try and figure out every tiny little nuance and detail, because if we do attempt to do that, we, we may get down a path um, really of, of no return. Um, yeah. And that's not where we want to go. So, um, but we also real quick, we also don't want to just say, Hey, it's beyond comprehension. So let's just move on. Like, let's, let's still pay attention to what the scripture says and, and go as far as the scripture goes to answer the question. Yeah, that's great. And I, I think, I think the new Testament does that, you know, the new Testament really doesn't try and explain everything. The new Testament just presents it. Yeah, and, and great. really that's kind of, uh, that's really the goal with this episode, which by the way, is episode 49 Christology Part 5, and we've titled it The Hypostatic Union. The Hypostatic Union. So we're going to use that particular title and that terminology all throughout this episode. Uh, so before we really get into the meat of everything, um, I think it would be best if we define what we mean when we say uh, the hypostatic union. It's, it's common in systematics, it's common in academic circles. I would say it may be even common in some churches mm -hmm. uh, to refer to um, this topic as the hypostatic union. Um, but everybody may not know, and that's not a big deal. Um, so, TJ, I I'm going to give you the opportunity here to uh, start working us into a definition uh, for the hypostatic union. Yeah, the, the hypostatic union, uh, I remember learning this very early on in seminary. First time I had been exposed to it, I, di I didn't know this term growing up in church. And, uh, you know, I think I understood the basic premise, but I didn't have that term, that vocabulary in my toolbox. But it is a helpful term. And it's, uh, in essence, the, the hypostatic union refers to the union of the two natures of Christ, the fact that he is fully divine and fully man. So he has a human nature and he has a divine nature. They are both 100% authentic divinity, 100% authentic humanity. Together, they have been joined into one person. So Jesus exists as one person and he has two natures and those two natures are joined in what is referred to as the hypostatic union. So that's kind of the overview 
that's the miracle of the union of those two things. But Lance, unpack those things, kind of kind of walk us through why that terminology, why that language is important to say um, one person, two natures. What distinctions do we need to make there? Yeah, the, the terminology really does matter um, because if you get the terminology wrong, then you fall into those heresies that we talked about in the grand distinction of uh, uh, the grand distinction of Christianity back in in, in part one. Um, and not, we're not necessarily saying if you you know you misspeak, <laughs> it happens. <laughs> it happens. All right. It it, it it does happen. But what we really mean is if it's a full on belief. Right. Um, so. When we're talking about the hypostatic union, we're specifically referring to Jesus Christ here. We're talking about Christ as one person who has two natures. Okay, so Herman Bavink in his four-volume Reformed Dogmatics, he gives a, a helpful uh, definition for person. He says, person is what exists in and for itself, the owner, possessor, and master of the nature. Okay, so when we talk about a person. When we're talking about a person, a person is the person that owns the nature. Okay. Mm -hmm. Owns the nature. Okay. So to continue with that, Jesus Christ is one person, but he owns two natures. Okay. He owns two natures. And we've talked about this on previous episodes. Jesus had only one nature until he took right. on a human nature like TJ has been preaching through in Philippians chapter 2. Yep. So when we refer to the hypostatic union, we're not talking about the pre-existent Jesus that had one person and one nature. We're talking about the incarnate Jesus who is one person that has added an additional human nature, which means he now has two natures, and TJ already alluded to it earlier, he's 100% God, he's 100% man, he's fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man, how, however you want to mm -hmm. you, you word that. But we, we want to be sure that we are right in that terminology to begin with, because if we are not, then we move off into those heresies, which are not right. distinct to Christianity. Right. Yeah, uh, I, I think you explained that really well. And when we think through, think about you and I, like anybody else who exists on this planet, we are individual persons and we have human a human nature. Like there's consistency. So every single one of us have one person, we are one person and we have one nature. And that nature is a the the intellect, our emotions, our will. It's 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 who we are and it's 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 how we would define who we are. So these are the the components of the person of, of that we that we exist as. And so uh when Christ in as we've already said in the eternity past he exists he is one person one person within the Godhead, one person within the Trinity, uh, but he has a divine nature uh, in that. But as you've already mentioned in Philippians 2, he leaves and he takes on flesh and then he, he, he doesn't empty himself of his divine nature, but he empties himself into a human nature as well. So, um, so that's essentially, that's foundational. We've got to have that in play to say one person, two natures, and those two natures are the divine nature and the human nature. Right. And, and the, the, what we have to understand, and this is unique only to Jesus. 
Yes. This is unique only to Jesus. So even when we talk about God the Father, God the Father is that one person with an, one nature. Right. The Holy Spirit is a person with one nature. But right. Christ in the incarnation went from being one person with one nature to adding the second nature that we keep talking about here. So this is even unique within the Trinity. That this, this would not be true of God the Father, and this would not be true of God the Spirit, but is only true and unique of God uh, the Son. And I, I want that to be established. I know I speak from TJ that that is absolutely critical when we're talking about the person of Jesus Christ. This is Him and Him alone. Right. And uh, that's, we, that's we can't great. get that mistaken. That's a that's a great observation. So uh, with that being said, Lance, let me let me ask this question. We use this word hypostatic union. So what we've just explained, that makes good and perfect sense. But why do we have to use that nasty theological term that nobody else knows? Right. Like, why do we use that phrase hypostatic union or that terminology? Yeah, we've mentioned on uh, this podcast before that there were major um, Trinitarian and Christological debates that took place between the third and fifth centuries. And we've mentioned different councils and creeds, Nicaea, Constantinople, the Chalcedonian um, mm-hmm. creed. We, we, we've talked about those church creeds where people, church leaders, have gotten together for weeks, months, and even years to flush out the correct terminology to define what the scriptures teach about the Trinity, and in our case, what the scriptures teach about Christology. So it was during that time um, that the, the, the word hypostasis or upostasis in the Greek was used um, to refer to persons. So Christ is one hypostasis with two natures. Okay, right. so that's where the, the hypostasis, the hypostatic union, that's where that comes from. So we're talking about this union of Christ, this this hypostasis, this union between the two uh, natures that he that he currently is. We would even argue for. Yeah, and <clears throat> excuse me, and I think that that's um, thanks for explaining that to us because. Uh, sometimes we think, oh, well, why do we have all these uh, the, these terms? It's not necessary. It's just a bunch of theologians just trying to sound smart. But those those words actually have historical roots. And I think it's important for us to recognize that this is not something that, you know, 21st century church came up with. Right? Like This has been discussed uh, and and labored over for years, for for centuries. This this conversation has happened. So uh, it's been it's been really uh, important. Um, and, and foundational in the early days of the church, and we benefit from that. And that term gives clarity to, uh, to to that definition, so that we know exactly what we mean when we say it. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a few quotes here uh, to kind of flush out what we've been saying um, by some men that can definitely articulate it better than I can. <laughs> um, but uh, Greg Allison. I think he has a helpful uh, definition. And then uh, the Chalcedonian Creed in 451 AD also just flushes this out beautifully. Um, so I'll, I'm, I'm going to read the one from Greg Allison, then I'm going to kick it back to you, TJ, okay. to uh, take us back to that, uh, that ancient document. Um, but Greg Allison, referring to the hypostatic union, um, he, he says it's the joining together of the two natures, one fully divine, 
one fully human in one person. That's the hypostasis. The pre-existent Son of God became incarnate by taking on a fully human nature, both a material aspect or body and an immaterial aspect or soul. So again, Greg Allison is he's articulating this point that Christ is fully divine, he's fully human, and that is being met and joined together in one hypostasis or in one person, Jesus Christ. Yeah, man, that's that's <laughs> nothing to add to that. Uh, the Chalcedonian Creed, this is 451, so you're talking 5th century, uh, been almost 1,600 years now since this uh, creed was established. But the the language of the Chalcedonian Creed is important. It says one, talking about one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. So talking about Jesus, recognized in two natures, so divine and human, without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. The distinction of those natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same, Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord, Jesus Christ. I mean, that there's such meticulous and intentional language there to say that Jesus Christ has two natures, and these two natures are not, uh, they're not blended together. We'll talk about that here in a minute. Uh, they're not separated. They're not, uh, they're not altered. They're not, one doesn't form into the other. They don't meld together. They are just simply two natures that exist within one person. And that one person is the God man, Jesus Christ. Just, yeah, and, I mean, it's just mind boggling, uh, you know, and, and they did not, again, they did not, this wasn't a couple Bible study sessions, <laughs> you know, to, <laughs> right. to, to formulate uh, that type of language and, and that type of definition to try and encapsulate all of, uh, of, of Jesus Christ. I mean, that was years and years and years uh, in, in the making to get such beautiful language to define him. Right. Um, yeah, one more quote here uh, by Kevin Zuber. He was actually my Theology 2 professor this summer, and he he spent a good chunk of Theology 2 um, demonstrating uh, the uh, hypostatic union. Um, but he says, The hypostatic union is the term used to describe how God the Son, Jesus Christ, took on a human nature, yet remained fully God at the same time. Jesus always had been God, but at the incarnation, Jesus became a human being. The addition of the human nature to the divine nature is Jesus, and here it is, the God-man. Zuber goes on to say, this is the hypostatic union, Jesus Christ, one person, fully God, and fully man. I wondered, I wondered who that was, so that was, that was your theology prof. Yeah, man, he 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 honestly crushed it. I, I need yeah. to put links to those lectures. Actually, download those lectures instead of this podcast. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, no, that's that, that's that's really well said. Um, and in thinking about this, one of the things that was mentioned that we haven't really talked a whole lot about, but we, we kind of hinted at, but it's that is that the characteristics of each nature is completely intact. So we spent a full episode talking about the divinity or the deity of Christ to say that Jesus 
even as he walked on this earth, was fully God. So yes, he pre-existed, but even when he came to this earth, he emptied himself, Philippians 2.7 says. Well, that that's not to say that he stopped being God. And we we articulated, we argued, we, we spent a full episode talking about that. So again, go back, make sure you, you've listened to that. And then we did the same thing with the humanity of Christ and said he was fully uh, truly human. He 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 had all the the characteristics and the nature of human nature. That's who that's who he was. He was fully human. But to say that both he was divine and human does not take away. It's not that he's like okay, he's mainly human, but he also has this like divine superpowers. Uh, or it's not like oh, he's mainly divine, but he just has to sleep at night. Like it's 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 he is both, and he is fully both. He is every bit God and every bit man. Uh, I, I love this phrase as I was uh, prepping for my uh, sermon, walking through Philippians 2 the last few weeks. Um, but it's, th- this phrase, it says, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. So he didn't stop being God to become man instead. He just, he continued to be God and he became man as well. And I think that that's just such an important distinction to make, uh, to say he is 100%. He is fully and truly God and fully and truly man, and neither one uh, offsets or affects the other. Dude, man, that's so clutch. I'm so glad you you said all that, TJ, and that's exactly right. And I think the only thing that I would add to that would be we have to be comfortable with that tension. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's easy to sit back and say, well, if he was fully God and now he's added humanity, you know, it... it, it I don't know. It might be possible that some of his divinity, you know, is right. is you know diminished in order for him to become human. Okay, look, that would be true if that's what the scripture actually taught, but the scripture doesn't teach that. So this this tension that immediately comes up when we start talking about the two natures of Christ, I, I guess I'm pleading and asking, and even even to my own soul, is that I, I just remain comfortable with being uncomfortable with this tension mm. that's presented with the person of Christ. It, it, mm. It's okay, TJ, like you had mentioned earlier, we are coming to a mystery, yeah. and our finite human minds won't be able to fully explain the mystery. So let's keep the mystery and not try and explain it away to make ourselves a little more comfortable with this situation. Yeah, man, I love that phrase, man. Be comfortable get comfortable being uncomfortable because it's just beyond comprehension. It, it, it really is. It's uh, it's what it compels us to worship and to just marvel at this mystery. Uh, and, and one of the cool things too uh, about this mystery is that it's not just going to be solved when we get to eternity, right? It's not just going to be like, oh, one day, like, okay, it's done because Jesus became man. And then now he's not man anymore. And oh, remember when he did that? Like, like we are going, like Jesus took on flesh, but he never takes it off. And so when we look into eternity future, his his two natures are going to remain. He is going to be fully God and fully man for eternity future. Uh, and, and that's one of the most incredible things. And we're going to talk about some of the implications of that as we close the episode today. Uh, but I love this quote from, from uh, J.L. Dagg, 19th century Baptist, uh, underrated in my opinion. Go read some Dagg. But Dagg writes this, he said, Jesus will ever be the lamb in the midst of the throne and will forever appear in his glorified humanity to the worshiping saints who with adoring praise will forever sing worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So when you look forward into the eternity future, Jesus will always be 
He will always be the glorified head of the human race because he will always be fully man while still maintaining his full divinity. Dude, I, 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 I cannot believe you just took it to that level. <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, if you honestly just sit back and contemplate mm. that reality that Jesus who in eternity past was only one nature and then he took on a human nature to never be void of that human nature again. Right. You know, it is just, it, it is just staggering. I mean, yeah, he, I, he didn't I, just I, like, he didn't just say like, okay, well I'll just do this for a temporary means to accomplish an eternal purpose. Like this was, this is an unchanging event. Like he, he says, okay, I'm taking on flesh and he's, he's not taking it off. Like that's like, even, even as he sits at the right hand of the father, like he, he is, he's in his glorified human state. Like he, that's who he is. He is, he's the head of the human race. Uh, he's the second and the new and the better Adam as we'll talk about. Like that is so significant and it's an eternal reality and it's an eternal mystery that we will forever marvel at because we will never fully understand that. We, we won't be able to grasp the, the implications and the thoughts behind all those things because it is a miracle and we can't get that even for you think through eternity where there is no time. There won't be a point where we will go, okay, I finally get it. We'll just continue to marvel. It's, it's an incredible thought. Yeah, I, I think I have a migraine right now. I, I can't <laughs> I can't even believe I can't even believe this. Um, no, I think you know, if you uh, read Acts chapter one, uh, it's clear that Jesus is still in a human body because he will return in like manner. I think we've we've mentioned that on the podcast. Um, but if you go through the book of Revelation, um, and you work through those 22 chapters, there are multiple references in, in the midst of that book where it is describing Jesus as having, uh, still having a human body in, in, in the future. You know, he's, mm-hmm. he's the lamb that was slain. I think that is, I don't know, maybe chapter six. Um, of course, you see that in chapters 21 and 22. But man, you know, sometimes I don't think about that, to be honest, TJ, that Jesus, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> he, he was not human in eternity past, but, you know, once he took on humanity, Philippians two, he's remained. I mean, that I, I I can't get over that. It's going to be hard for me to refocus on anything else. This episode, (laughs) this is not good because I have a lot more to ask you, but, but I do think like we mentioned this with the humanity, the, in the humanity episode, um, the, uh, the quote from Burkhoff, when he says that many, many, unfortunately stress the deity of Christ to the expense of not focusing or understanding or or appreciating his humanity. And I'm so guilty of that because he is he is God. And so I, I want to marvel at his deity. I want to worship him. I, I want to consider him as the second person of the Trinity, which is all true, but we can't forget the fact that he is also 100% human and he will forever be 100% human. That is that is very significant because that is part of his person. He, he, he cannot be Jesus without being human. That's that's who he is at this point. Yeah, it, it's, it really is. It's amazing. Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely amazing. Um, <clears throat> well, it's, a, it's going to be tough to move off of this point, yeah, but we're gonna yeah. ha- we're gonna have to. Okay. Um, well, as well, as we about- as we do that though, as we do that, let me. I hate to cut you off. I want to I want to read this quote. Maybe you can read the one from Warfield because I think it would probably just fit the moment. Uh, this quote from Wayne Grudem. I, I love this quote in his systematic. He says, "This is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible." And, and when I preached yesterday, I was thinking about this. Like, 
all these miracles, and we could talk about all the miracles I kind of gave through like a a, a quick flyby of, of a handful of like really remarkable miracles. He says, this is far more amazing than the resurrection. And it's more amazing even than the creation of the universe. Like we can conceptualize those two things. We, we can imagine God doing creating out of nothing because he's God. Like he can do that. Or we can imagine him raising Jesus from the dead because that is, that's in his path. He, he's the God over, but, but he says the fact that the infinite omnipotent eternal son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever. So that the infinite God could become one person with finite man. He says that will remain for eternity. The most profound miracle, and the most profound mystery in all the universe. And that's all. I mean, that's what it is. I love that quote because that's exactly how I see it too. Yeah. And BB Warfield, he, he jumps in on our little conversation here. And he says, of all the marvels which have ever occurred in the marvelous history of the universe, this is the greatest, mm-hmm. that what was from the beginning has been heard and gazed upon, seen, and handled by men. Of course, there mm-hmm. at the end, you know, referring to First John chapter 1. But of all the marvels that could have ever occurred in the marvelous history of the universe, he, he loves that word marvelous, by the way. Yes, he does. The, the hypostatic union, Jesus taking on human flesh, is the most marvelous of everything. Though, you know, yeah. to what you had talked about that Grudem had mentioned and you th- right. you had explained. I mean, this is this is on another level. Yeah, it, I mean, it really is, and that's why I think that we're at such a loss for words right now because it is, in the words of BB Warfield, it's a marvel and it's marvelous. So yeah, and so uh, don't ruin it. <laughs> by by thinking wrongly about the one person and two natures of Christ. Um, so so quickly here, let's just run through um, some ideas about what the hypostatic union is not, or what the hypostatic union uh, does not mean. And uh, we could you could also double back again to the grand distinction of Christianity episode to get some of this. But um, we are not saying that Jesus becomes a third nature or another person. Okay, we're not saying he becomes a third nature, that somehow um, he's moved beyond the two natures that he has, and those have somehow been mixed and morphed together to form a third nature or another person. That's Mm -hmm. not what we're teaching here, and we believe that is not what the New Testament is teaching either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we we would also say that he doesn't become... Uh, less than God. So this isn't just some like step down on the ladder to say, okay, well, he's fully God for the most part, but he also has humanity. So he's just a notch below uh, God the Father because of this. That's not what we're teaching. He is fully God. This That would be uh, a misunderstanding and a misappropriation of this, of this uh, understanding of who Jesus is. Yeah, and Jesus does not become half God and half man. In other words, Jesus isn't 50% God and 50% man, and that makes him 100% a person now with two natures. That's, again, not what we're teaching. He's fully 100% God, fully 100% man, and these two natures make up the person of Christ. Yeah, and I would add to that, like kind of that that same vein, like he doesn't toggle back and forth. Uh, there's not like this internal struggle. He doesn't have this like split personality where deity's coming out. Uh, like it's not like Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, he's fully God. And like Tuesday, Thursdays, he's fully man, you know, and like take the weekend off. Like, like he is simply both at all times. He doesn't switch back and forth. 
uh, he's he's God and he's man, and there's it's just an ever present is uh, from this point forward. Man, that's so good. I saw where you added that on the guide, so I'm going to give you credit for adding that. Thanks. Adding that last point, and I'm I'm glad that you did uh, because there are some that will advocate for the fact uh, that. Um, or this idea that Jesus is, you're right, I mean, he's toggling back and forth. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he's just fully living as a man. And then at other times, man, he's just full-blown God, right? Mm-hmm. Like th- there isn't any of this switching back and forth. Um, it, the, the scripture doesn't teach, uh, teach or portray Jesus in this particular manner. And I think if you start dividing Jesus up this way, that's when you run into danger of now tampering with his person. Again, be comfortable um, allowing the scriptures to speak, even if that mystery is a little mind-bending and blowing. That, yeah. That's really when you know that you're grasping it. If you get to that point and you're like, wow, you know, I, I'm blown away uh, by this marvelous Jesus. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of that, Lance, I, you, you, put, you put an example in here, and, and I've got a couple more that I'm thinking of too, but I think you're, the example you have highlighted from Mark chapter 4 is probably the the, the most profound and, and powerful example. So talk talk us through this example. Why did you put Mark 4, 38 and 39 on here? And how does that relate to a right understanding of the hypostatic union and how it's not Jesus toggling back and forth? Walk, walk us through that if you can. Yeah, well, in, uh, in Mark chapter 4, uh, you come across the uh, narrative where the winds and the waves obey Christ. So Jesus is in the, on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, um, and a, a gigantic, massive storm uh, sweeps down into the Sea of Galilee, and, and Jesus is sleeping during the storm. Mark four thirty eight says that he's mm-hmm. sleeping. Okay, and the scripture doesn't describe that; it, it just naturally puts that in there because this is what Jesus does. He be, because he is a human, so he's sleeping during the storm. Okay, which is which is so profound. This is the God Man who is tired from pe- preaching and teaching and, and um, you know, being the physician that he was in terms of bringing spiritual rescue and even healing. So in Mark 4.38, Jesus is sleeping. He's sleeping in the boat. But then you get to Mark 4.39, Jesus wakes up and he calms the storm and the sea. So in a matter of one verse, mm-hmm. we see Jesus sleeping Next thing you know, he's standing up and he's calming the entire sea. But what's interesting to note is as Mark writes this, and by the way, he's writing for an audience, um, you know, in, in a quick, fast-paced narrative where he's telling these stories to make them easy to understand, which is just so shocking about this story, because one minute Jesus is sleeping, the next minute he is calming the storms. But then you would expect in Mark 4.40 or Mark 4.41 for him to explain the hypostatic union. Mm-hmm. But he, he, he doesn't. Right. He just gives a real-time explanation of exactly what Jesus was experiencing. And what was that? Well, that he was tired and he was sleeping and that he woke up and he calmed the storm. That yeah. was That's the experience of Jesus Christ. So, TJ, like you had mentioned earlier, He's not toggling back and forth. Jesus isn't there sleeping thinking, man, this is just great to be a human. I can finally take a nap. Whoa, right. all of a sudden this storm is out of control. Oh my gosh, I've, I've got to put on my cape and mm-hmm. I've got to use superpowers here to, to stop this thing. No, he, he's sleeping and then he calms the storm. 
Right. And and yeah. that's that. Yeah, I mean, I as you were t- as you were telling that story walking us through there in Mark 4, I I was reminded also of the miracle when he feeds the 5000. So there's he's been teaching. It says he he's tired and he he tells the disciples that he has compassion on the crowds and and then he he says, "Hey, they're hungry, and so let's give them something to eat." And so then he multiplies the the fish and the loaves and he has this miraculous feeding and he ate. It says they all they all ate and they were all satisfied and so Jesus is among them and they're the the disciples are eating. They 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 they, his humanity is on display while simultaneously performing miracles that only the Son of God himself, who is fully God, could perform in the moment. Uh, and we're not given an explanation for this. We're not given any kind of of, of uh, little footnote that says, and by the way, you know, this is Jesus tapped into this. Like, it's just who he is. Uh, it's just straightforward. And I love the, the comment you made. You put it on the guide and then you talked about it here, just that, as the biblical authors are writing this, they don't attempt to dive too deep to understand. They just simply say, this is what happens. And they're writing as they've experienced it. This is Mark is writing from the experience of Peter to say, this is what we saw. Like this is who he is. Like he just, he was asleep and then he calmed the storm and he had compassion and then he multiplied the fish and the loaves. So he, he just is both. And, and this is, that's because Jesus is one person, but he has both of these natures. He is divine and he's man, and he's 100% both at all times. Yeah, and uh, to quote again from B.B. Warfield, he says, what is characteristic of all three Gospels is the inextricable interlacing in their narratives of the human and divine traits, which alike marked the life they are depicting. Hmm. Again, the gospel writers, TJ, as you alluded to, and especially your comment there about Marcus, you know, he, he's writing under the influence of Peter. Look, Peter is there for the right. event that's taking place that Mark is talking about. And from F- Peter's vantage point, this is what he sees Jesus experiencing as the one person with both natures. This is this is just how Jesus lives. Um, yeah. B.B. Warfield goes on to say, it is impossible to derive from the gospels the portrait of any other than a divine human Jesus, if we surrender ourselves to their guidance and take off of their pages the portrait they have endeavored to draw. Mm. You know, so again, Warfield, he's coming to the conclusion, look, this is the portrait that the gospel writers are painting. They are painting a divine human Jesus, the God-man, the hypostatic union. This is what they're painting. And when we look at this picture, at this portrait, this is what we need to come away with. Yeah, I I love that. That reminds me of that Burkhoff quote that we talked about a few weeks ago, right? Like, if you believe the Bible's true, then you believe that this is who Jesus is, because it's unmistakably clear. Um, you know, thinking about, we, we could do this for a while, but thinking about examples, I was thinking also the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Jesus is praying, he's pleading, he has this this humanity in the sense that he's he's anxious, he sweats drops of blood, and yet he he demonstrates this very unique relationship that he has with the Father uh, in that moment, this this uh, eternal relationship that he's had as the Son of God. And then even on the cross, I, I, I was thinking about this too, on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, he has this this feeling, this human feeling of abandonment, this the, this emotion in the moment, and yet at the same time, he's 
eternally atoning for the sins that only the Lamb of God, as the fully divine Son, could atone for. So we see his divinity in play as he gives up his human spirit and he feels forsaken, and it's his divinity that is satisfying the wrath of God. It's his humanity that gives up his life, but there's no distinction that's made. It's just that's who he is. Both are in play at all times. Oh my goodness, dude, just stop it. Oh my <laughs> goodness. Look, let's go back to, uh, you put on the guide, the Garden of Gethsemane, okay? Mm -hmm. and, and I think you mentioned this on the previous episode, but th this is pretty common knowledge that, you know, when Jesus was praying to the Father that night, you know, the night before his crucifixion and death, he, he is sweating blood. Mm -hmm. Luke records that he is in agony, um, as he is praying to the Father, knowing he's about to face the wrath of God, knowing he's about to face crucifixion, okay? So, I mean, he's, he's sweating blood. If that, that's mm -hmm. not authentic humanity, I don't know what is. Well, then in John 18, right after that event, as the, um, as the, the, the crowd of soldiers, the multitude of soldiers that come to arrest Jesus, you know, they start asking, you know, is this Jesus? Are, are you him? Are, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus says, I am he. And all of them are knocked onto the ground mm. by the power of Jesus's own words in John 18. So again, we see Jesus living this experience. We see him living this out. He's not toggling back and forth. He's not saying, look, I'm just going to put my humanity on display by sweating blood here. Ha ha ha. Cool trick. And then, you know, one chapter later, right. he's knocking everybody to the ground with his words. Like, this is just the Jesus that the Gospels present. It's He's one person with two natures, and those natures are on full display, even if we can't harmonize and explain that mystery. Mm, gosh, that's so good. Uh, man, you, you, you mentioned mystery again. I mean, and, and you've hinted at this. We've talked about this. Um, but there's just this tension right, that exists there, and we don't have to attempt to understand all of it. I do think it's helpful to contemplate it. I do think it's helpful to think about it, to consider it, uh, but not to fully try to be able to put a bow on it and say, now I got it. Um, like when I preached this sermon this past Sunday, the greatest feedback I got from people was, I didn't understand I mean, I appreciated it. I thought it was good. I, I but I still don't understand. I'm like, I don't understand either. I, I've been, I've been studying this and prepping this and thinking about this. But we simply have to be uh, able to admit that this is a mystery which transcends human reason. It's something that we can't fully grasp. Um, it, it's beyond comprehension. So uh, we, we just need to recognize that. And I think that that's that's been um, hammered home. So hey, any yeah. other comments on this? Before we yeah, jump I've to got, the implications, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna read uh, one scripture from First Timothy chapter three that kind of piggybacks off the uh, you know the mystery um, little little topic that you were going with there, mm -hmm. um, and then then we'll kick it back over to you to work us through some theological implications of the hypostatic union. But since we're on on the uh, thought or the idea of mystery, even the apostle Paul re refers to the hypostatic union. This God man as a mystery in First Timothy chapter three, uh, verse sixteen, uh, Paul writes, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, 
believed on in the world, and received up in glory. Um, I mean, the Apostle Paul here is landing where we are. So we're mm-hmm. in good company when we say that this idea of Christ being one person, two natures, the hypostatic union, we have to be comfortable with this mystery. We have to be that's, comfortable. That's where that's, the scriptures go. That's bonus material, ladies and gentlemen. That was not on the God. That was whew, that's good stuff right there. Uh, man. All right. Any, any other comments on this before we knock out some implications and wrap up? No, nah, man, that's a, uh, let's roll through some implications and, and TJ is going to do most of the legwork on this. Um, but I do want to just highlight that these implications will be explained and discussed more in future episodes in Christology here. Um, mm-hmm. so TJ is going to touch on them bird's eye view, and then we're really going to dissect these things, um, over the coming weeks. Yeah. Uh, so when, when we think about this, there's a temptation. If, if maybe you're a regular listener to the podcast and you listen each and every week. And so, oh, we're talking about the hypostatic union this week. So you'll, you'll come along with us, but really it wouldn't be a topic that you would be interested in. Uh, maybe you kind of cherry pick and you just stumbled upon this, but sometimes people think, oh, we're talking about the hypostatic union of the two natures and the one person. Like This is just like high-minded academia for a bunch of theologians that have too much time on their hands, right? Like This stuff is just, why do I care about this? Uh, But one of the things I've been trying to communicate to the people of my church as I've preached through some of these things and thinking about these things is how incredibly practical and significant this is for us as believers. Uh, we've talked, first of all, you think about why did Jesus, why is it so significant that Jesus is both fully God and fully man? Well, we've talked about uh, the deity of Christ being significant as the revelation of God, but on a much more practical, personal level, thinking about just thinking about the cross. When Jesus dies on the cross, significant things happen, obviously. First of all, Jesus is able to satisfy the wrath of God because he is fully divine. Lance, I, I want to ask you this question. If if I know you, you're you're not ready for this, so pressure's on. If you sin in a moment, okay, just one instant, you have a one sinful thought, you know, one sinful act, whatever. How long do you would would you need to be punished in order to make that right? Yeah, man. You know, I think you're proposing it this particular way. You know, why would if a 20 year old was to die as an unbeliever, why would 20 years of sins get that person eternal uh, exactly. death in hell? Well, the 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 number of sins and and take this with a grain of salt because I'm getting to the explanation here. But the number of sins doesn't really matter. I, I guess you could say, in in terms of the point that I'm trying to make here. Although sin does matter, so please hear me mm-hmm. on that. Mm-hmm. But it isn't the number of years or the number of sins that you commit that's worthy of of eternal death. It's because you have offended an eternal God. That's the issue. The issue isn't the number of sins that you built up, which, by the way, cannot be counted, but only God can count those things. But you have have offended the, the highest 
and most supreme being who mm-hmm. also happens to be eternal. So it's an right. eternal offense. Okay. It's it, not a limited yes. offense. It's eternal. I hope that's where you were wanting me yes. to go. <laughs> no, I love I didn't even, I didn't even have that ready to be said. It's an eternal offense because it's against an ever present God, right? Like yeah. God is not, God is not bound by time. And so we say like, oh, well, these 20 years, these 80 years or whatever, like I can make restitution. Somebody could make restitution and then be annihilated or then no, like, that sin is against the eternal God. And so it's an eternal sin because God himself uh, is an eternal being who's not bound by time. And so the significance of that, the reason why that matters so much is because in order for God's wrath to be satisfied eternally, there had to be an eternal satisfaction and that could only come by a divine being. So Jesus is our, 1 John 2 tells us that he's the propitiation for our sins. He's the satisfaction for our sins. Well, the reason why he's able to be the satisfaction for our sins is because he was 100% fully God when he died on that cross. Like, that's major. Dude, I'm going to have you just say that. Please go through that, that, that one more time. Okay, I've got one more time. That was just that was so gold. Okay, yeah. So we have sin that we've accrued against God. Because of that sin, we have an eternal debt to pay. There's an eternal wrath to be poured out, and so the satisfaction for that wrath can only be accomplished by an eternal being shedding His blood. So. Jesus is said to be the propitiation, the satisfaction of our sins, and that can only happen because he is fully God. Yeah, and and that's why we've said Jesus isn't merely man, Mm -hmm. but he's also God. Oh, dude, I can't even believe it. And fully God, right? Like if he were, if he were ninety nine percent God and just has he gave up a couple of things and and he's like mainly God, but he has some divinity, like he has some humanity, like dabbled in to finish the rest. Like that doesn't work. He has to be fully eternal and fully God, fully good, fully righteous, fully just. All of those things have to be in play in order for him to satisfy the wrath of God, and in order for him to be on the cross and be able to cry out, "It is finished." Like to do that means there is no more sacrifice that needs to be made. There is no more that needs to be accomplished because in his divinity, he has accomplished and, and satisfied God's wrath. That's, that's significant. No, it's major. Man, look, I, I, can, I think the only thing I could even add to that would be that Jesus was only on the cross for six hours, but because mm. he is the eternal God, he could take the wrath, all the wrath in that six hour window, you know, he, he's exactly. not eternally on the cross or having to continue to die as, you know, mm. the book of Hebrews said it was one right. sacrifice, but that all plays into his person that he That's is right. fully man and fully God. I, I, yeah. I don't, I don't have anything to add, man, be, be, well, beyond well, that. This is, well, this is get wow. ready because get ready. Cause we're going to keep going. So that's, that's because he's fully God, he's able to satisfy God's wrath, but that's not enough for us to have salvation applied to us because we know that he serves as our substitute. So he didn't just go and satisfy the wrath of God willy-nilly. He didn't just satisfy the wrath of God generically. He satisfied the wrath of God to be poured out upon sinners. And that's majorly significant because we know from the book of Hebrews, right, that the, the first of all, there has to be shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. But the blood of bulls and goats won't do it. 
right? So man has to atone for man's sin. Uh, we can't take something else as a uh, as a substitute in our place to say, "Hey, I I deserve to die, but here, take this goat." Now, why? What about how do the Old Testament sacrifices point? Like, how, how do they work into this? Yeah, they, they're, well, they're a picture. They're, right. they're they're ultimately an illustration. They're pointing towards an ultimate and a final sacrifice. You read exactly. through the Book of Leviticus and you see animal sacrifices happening over and over and over. Well, the sacrifices in and of themselves weren't sufficient weren't sufficient for man because the animals clearly aren't man. Mm-hmm. They also weren't sufficient for man because even the priest performing the sacrifice was a sinner. So yeah. there was it, it was never meant to be salvation and never meant to be a substitution. It was always right. meant to be a picture of what you're talking about with Jesus Christ and what the book of Hebrews explains. Those were all shadows exactly. of what would ultimately come fulfilled in Jesus. And that's why, you nailed that, that's why the author of Hebrews says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers. That's why Jesus had to be made like us, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the servants of God in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So he went in our place because he was fully man. So if he wasn't man, he could not satisfy the wrath of God to be poured out upon men. Uh, that's so significant. So salvation can't happen if Jesus is not 100% man and if he's not 100% God. Uh, he has to be both in order for this uh, divine transaction to take place. Uh, and, and then not only that, Lance, this is the last thing I've got, and then we can wrap up. But not only that, but he has to be man in order to serve as the new and better Adam. So that's Romans 5. We've talked about this. But when we're born in, into this world, we're born under the federal headship of Adam as the head of the human race. If, if Jesus is going to be the new and better Adam, he has to be man because now he serves as the head of the elect. He, he serves as the head of the human race who are in Christ and as the, the firstborn among many brothers. Uh, man, I'm, I'm getting too fired up. You got to take over. Well, dude, I... I'm just at a loss. Uh, you know, th- this is why the hypostatic union is is so critical. Not not only because we want to honor and glorify Christ by believing right about Him, but because the implications that drip out of this union directly affect you and I, and it yeah. directly affects everyone listening. Jesus has to be the God Man. If He is not the God Man. We have no hope. Yep, and that's why we put so inf- so much emphasis on uh, Christ this summer, and we're going to continue working through Christology uh, because we have to get this right. We cannot miss this point. Th- this mm-hmm. is essential to Christianity, and this is essential to our souls. Yes, yeah, and and I love you already mentioned that we're gonna what we just talked about is gonna carry over, and we're gonna have more conversations that come from this. But we've always said this, right? That theology is always connected. And so this is going to bleed into our understanding of soteriology, salvation, who Jesus is, uh, determines and impacts the way that God accomplishes salvation in and through him. Um, so there's so many implications that come from this. And I, I think that if, if you're good with it, we'll hop into the initiative. I, I think I, I would have kind of two, two minor points that I would put together for one uh, to take away from this. And first of all, 
that is that this is not just something for seminary students to think about or for pastors and theologians to write blogs about or books about like, oh yeah, let's just talk about this high-minded stuff from, you know, from deep in the weeds of scripture. No, this has major, major ramifications for every single one of us who are in Christ. If we, if we don't have this doctrine, we don't have Christianity. Uh, and secondly, I'd say related to that is that we will marvel at this mystery because it's intertwined with the gospel and we will marvel at it for eternity. Uh, this is the heart of the gospel is wrapped up in this person of Christ. We have no salvation apart from him uh, it is through his name. Uh, he is the only way uh, to the father. And it, it comes through the person of Christ and through his work and his person uh, as fully divine and fully man. Uh, that's who he is. Yeah, man, that, that was good. Thanks for adding that there uh, here, here at the end. Um, yeah, for my initiative, uh, I would go back to um, Warfield and just encourage us all to marvel at the marvelous work of God sending Jesus Christ into this world to save sinners. Mark 10, 45, to give his life a ransom for many. Luke 19, 10, Jesus came to seek and to save that which mm. was lost. That 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 is only possible if the hypostatic union is actually the biblical Jesus. And, and we believe right. that's what the scripture teaches. That's what we're arguing for here on this episode. And it, honestly, I, I, I'm speechless. Even working through this and in prepping for it, you know, yep. the past week or so, I, I didn't think that I would come to the, the place where I, I would really be speechless because I'm in awe over the person of Jesus. I, I, I'm really there. I, I need mm. to get up in the attic and check that condensation <laughs> line again. <laughs> Bur, oh, burn off God. a little energy that I've worked up here. Yeah, you already cleaned behind the fridge. You got to find something else to do. Gosh, man, I, that that was a fun conversation. Uh, if you're new to the podcast, we do this every week. Most of the time, it's just like that. We just walk through and talk through a doctrine. Uh, so if you're if you're new, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. You can find us on itunes you can find us on youtube you can be uh sure to like us on facebook where we have we're on facebook at reformed informants we're on instagram and twitter at our underscore informants and you can find access to all of our episodes all our social media platforms anything and everything as well as a shop of ours uh you can get some gear uh, to support the podcast you can find all that on our website that's at www.themajestiesmen.com slash reformed informants yeah, and if you order that gear, it should be here by Thanksgiving. So be sure you... <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> oh, man. Well, if you have any questions or suggestions for topics of discussion, feel free to email us at reformedinformants at gmail.com. <laughs>